the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello, my name is indeed Elna Schutz and this is the one hour of the week where we look at some science around a news story and just generally for our lives. And today we're talking about something quite serious. I'm not sure whether you heard about it, but what was once an ordinary hole in the middle of the ground has over the years turned into a 50 meter high rubber sheep in Hulene on the outskirts of Mozambique's capital, Maputo. Disaster struck there in the early hours of the morning recently when the pressure from the very heavy rains from uh, f- from several days caused the landfill uh, to collapse. It fell onto people's homes and so far I think the last number that I, I read was 21 people have been d- reported dead and various families are now homeless. And despite the fact that the dump is often covered in smoke, emits a terrible smell and of course poses other risks, there are even more families now that are still living there and are at risk of another collapse. So this is terribly sad, but it is actually not the first occurrence. I was quite surprised to find out that there have been quite a few landfill collapses in the last year. In Feb of 2017, one man died in a collapse in Pennsylvania. Then in March, in Ethiopia, 72 people died. Later in August, about eight people died in the country of Guinea. And in September, in New Delhi, two more. That, to me, sounds like a problem. And the landfill in Hulene, like so many in South Africa, is also a place for many to try to make ends meet on a daily basis around our country, like in so many. People can be seen at these dump sites, sifting through uh, through dirt and, and through the trash, looking for food or valuables, recyclable materials, just trying to make a little bit of a living. And despite warnings from all sides, you know, from from health officials, dump site officials, many keep coming back because it's the only way that they can feed their families. So today on the show, we want to take some time and really look at the trash in our lives. Specifically, we're going to look at how exactly a landfill is designed and, you know, what does the future of our waste look like? How is the environment being protected from often quite toxic chemicals? So we want to understand that in light of the tragedy in Mozambique. But later in the show... It's unscience, and today in that sort of fun feature, if you're rich and successful, you probably think it's because you worked very hard and are very talented. But I'm going to tell you that it might just be random. Have a listen to that later, and then later in the show, we speak to geolog- uh, geologist Chiamo Lejola. Oh, sorry, Lejole. Ah, my tongue got twisted there for a second. Uh, We're going to be speaking there, just seeing the scientists behind the science. As always, you can find us on social media, The Science Inside on Facebook. The WhatsApp line is 0840784912. You can tweet us at VARFM, hashtag Science Inside. But before we get into all of that, let's get into our news. This week's Science Headline. So today on the news, as always, I have our producer, Bridget Lepera, with us in studio. Bridget, what do you have for us? 
Hi, Elna. Um, new research indicates that life, the lifespan and health of eggs can be extended. Okay. Princeton University worm researchers have identified a key protein in worm cells that when they injected the the drug to inhibit the key protein, it resulted in the preservation of the egg cells, making them more viable long after their lifespan. The lead researcher, Colleen Murphy, discovered that when the egg's key protein was blocked during the egg's fertile window, which is equivalent to a woman in her mid-30s, the method successfully prolonged the life of the remaining healthy egg cells. Okay, it sounds like they found a good solution here, Bridget, but why is my human female fertility being compared to that of a worm? Well, Murphy says the notion that worms are very different from mammals is very inaccurate because they keep finding the same genes, including those that drive the aging processes. She added that in a breeding study, they found that the same proteins found in the worm also played the same role in, in cows as well. Okay, so I'm going to hazard a wild guess here and assume that they're not doing this so that they can help worms make more babies. What is the problem they're trying to solve here? Well, the certainty of infertility becomes more evident as we age. And what Dr. Murphy is pointing out here is that scientists have overlooked this fact and that the problem lies in the degrading of the quality of ovum rather than the lack thereof as we age. As you would know, by the time a woman reaches her mid-30s, her fertility declines rapidly and falling pregnant at this age um, could increase the risk of miscarriage and other maternal age-related birth defects. She also says that over the years, she has wondered what science could possibly do to maintain the egg quality with the increase of age. Okay, so she seems to have found an answer to her question. But how did they make this discovery? Well, other two postdoctoral um, fellows, Nicole Templeman and Rachel Ketelsky, investigated one of the key proteins that were already broken that had already broken down uh, by by enzymes, an occurrence which is rare in high quality eggs and something which is more common in eggs that have begun degrading with age. They wanted to test the effects of the drug on the protein since this drug was already made available. And how did they do this? Well, when Templeman administered the, the drug at the beginning of the worm's reproductive window, the equi- which is equivalent to, to puberty, the drug, wor- the drug worked, but it is not very helpful for women. She says they are looking for a drug that could possibly be given to women in their mid-30s, which could preserve their eggs. And in another experiment, Templeman removed the key protein and it succeeded in extending the worm's fertility by up to 10%. And if this was applied to human beings, well, women in this case, it could extend their fertility period to up to six years. And this drug is nowhere near ready for testing in humans yet, but Murphy says it is something that could work because this discovery is a game changer in terms of reproduction. 
Okay, I could see how this might have an effect on a lot of people because we all know, especially when you're going, you know, late into your 20s, you know people who really want kids and are struggling. And then on the other side, we know so many, I know so many girls or women who would want kids, but not now. Maybe they haven't met somebody that they want to have kids with or they want to be married or they want to first have a certain success or or whatever it might be. And this idea that you only have a certain amount of, of years is very scary. So if they can develop something that makes that window longer, sounds like a good idea. Very awesome. So, Bridget, for my story, I do have to ask you, do you, do you like horses? Well, my surname has something to do with Horses, so yeah, I guess I, I like <laughs> horses <laughs> just by default. Just yeah, by, <laughs> just by your name. So I, I used to ride horses when I was a child, and I quite like the idea of them, especially when you see them running in the fields with the mane. They're being wild, you know. Maybe you've seen that in a movie or out somewhere on on the farms. It turns out that this idea of beautiful, completely wild horses doesn't actually exist anymore. So I'm so sorry if you love that idea. It's not really real, at least not according to science. So Przewalski's horses are a beautiful endangered wild horse species that lives in Central Asia and especially in countries like Mongolia. So for a very long time, it was thought that this was the last species of wild horse on earth that had not been domesticated, so hadn't been tamed by humans. But now a new study puts, turns that on its head and it was published in the journal Science by the University of Kansas and has found out that this actually isn't true. So they did a phylogenetic analysis, which means that you use genetics, your genes, to look back into family trees of different species and see where did they split. So where did they used to share an ancestor and now don't anymore? So they found that these horses come from actually the earliest known instance of horse domestication by the Batai people of northern Kazakhstan some 5,500 years ago. And they think that these horses probably escaped from domestic Batai herds. And here's the thing. These Batai horses were actually thought to be the ancestors of modern domesticated horses. So the ponies you see on TV or, you know, when you go to, to a farm or you go and ride a horse. Um, but it turns out it's, it's not true. Our modern domesticated horses actually don't come from the Botai herds. So the Schwalski horses actually come from the Botai tribe. So then where do modern horses come from? As you're saying, a lot is is still unsure and actually the DNA showed quite a few surprises. So we don't actually know where the domesticated modern horses came from as of yet because we only just find out that they don't come from the Bataille like we thought. But what this discovery does mean is that there are no truly wild horses species left. So what about Mustangs? I mean, those wild American horses that you see in the Western movies. Yeah, with the cowboys running, shooting each other. 
actually, those also come from domesticated horses, specifically ones that were brought to North America by the Spanish. So, I'm sure this is sad for those of us who like horses, but it's especially shocking to equine biologists who for a very long time thought they were studying the last wild horses when they looked at the uh, Chowalskis. But it's actually not that terrible because there's no real loss of biodiversity here. There's still lots of species of horses that just have all had contact with humans. And as to our modern day domestic horses, um, there are still a lot of questions, as we said, about where exactly they came from. But now scientists can try to find that out too. Okay, so now we... Yeah, so now we know. <laughs> Bridget, thank you so much for joining us for the news. Next up, we have heard that men are trash, but it turns out that trash is also trash. <laughs> Next up, we speak to a landfill designer about what happens to our rubbish and how it can go wrong. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome to the show. My name is Alna Schutz. Remember, you can find us on Facebook as The Science Inside or tweet us at RAFM, hashtag Science Inside. As you might have heard, the Hulena landfill in Mozambique has collapsed after heavy rains. The last death toll was at 21 people killed in this outskirts area of Maputo in Mozambique recently. And if a landfill collapses, it can be very dangerous, especially because more and more people have started squatting or living close to landfills, even though technically they shouldn't. Possibly they want to be closer to to cities or they're making their living off of landfills, whatever the reason might be. But beyond all of this, how we design where our rubbish lands up affects a lot more, such as the groundwater and even the soil and, and the health of the soil around a specific area. So I'm going to take you into the dirty, trashy parts of South Africa now with a specialist consulting engineer and landfill designer, Jan Palm. We have more than a thousand landfills in the country, and up to 1989, there were there were no rules that applied to landfilling. Waste was simply dumped into the nearest hole or quarry, sometimes even in the nearest river. And uh, since 1989, we had the Environmental Conservation Act, which uh, which which tried to to set a standard for landfills. And uh, that was called the minimum requirements for waste disposal by landfill by Department of Water Affairs. And since then, we had to design the landfills. We had to locate them in a certain way, make sure that they are um, as far as possible from people, but also close enough so that the transport isn't unaffordable. And in 2013, we we had a new set of of regulations coming out uh, under the Waste Act called the Norms and Standards for Landfilling. And it made landfilling or the design of landfills even more tougher, right right up to the best standards in the world. Today, we have to design landfills with plastic liners and clay liners to prevent any contamination of groundwater. So it's a a complete science at the moment where it used to be just, just a dump. 
So it's definitely great that we've moved from just dumping rubbish into a hole to highly designed waste areas. But the truth is that those all dumps still exist. So not all of the dumps or landfills in South Africa are at the level that they should be. But here is how you do build a good landfill. You start by choosing a good location. Then you have to dig a hole first, a structured hole with certain slopes, let's say one in three um, side slopes. And uh, the reason why you dig the hole first is to harvest as much as soil material as possible to later use as cover um, for the waste operation because waste must be covered on a daily basis with, with 150 millimeters of soil. And if you don't dig the hole, then you don't have the soil to do that. So, so you basically dig a hole and then you, you, you will line that hole similar to lining a dam. You, you have a number of layers of clay to a certain uh, um, low permeability. And uh, on top of that, you get um, a plastic layer. Uh, it's normally one and a half millimeters of uh, plastic. And uh, then on top of that, you have some protection layers for the plastic. And on top of that, you have a, a drainage layer to collect and drain any liquid that can percolate through the waste body. And only after that, you can put the waste on it. So there's a class of landfill where our normal domestic waste from your and my trash can in the house uh, comes in to that landfill. This one has plastic and clay layers, but then for hazardous material landfill fills, there are two layers. So plastic, clay, plastic, clay. And all those layers are very important, but they're also quite costly. Making just a small landfill can cost around 40 to 50 million rand. My friends, that's a lot of money for trash. But it does need to be designed properly because if you take everything into account, our waste becomes quite a chemical mess. If you throw away waste, uh, and if, you, if I say you, it, you know, the public of Africa, when we throw away waste or, or when we put it out for collection on the sidewalk, um, it's not only the stuff that we put into the black bag. There's, there's, there's some industrial waste as well. As long as it's not hazardous, um, but you get a lot of, of household hazardous materials as well, like, like fluorescent tubes and batteries and pesticides and, um, let's say, healthcare waste um, from, from households, nappies. Now, if you put all of that into one hole, then you can imagine that uh, if you add water to it, um, then it becomes a fairly uh, complicated chemical cocktail. And uh, that's the reason why uh, we have to, to, to include plastic in, in the bottom liner to make sure that that, that, that chemical liquid does not get in, uh, in contact with the clay liners and, and, and maybe have some chemical reactions with, with the minerals in the clay. And, and that's also why we have to drain it from, from the plastic layer to make sure that, that we don't create a liquid pond. Um, but the chemicals, I mean, so you, can, you can get all the kinds of, of chemical um, formulas that you have learned about in, in, in chemistry at, at the varsity. You will, you will get most of them in a landfill because it's a, it's a complete mix. In this complex mix, some things are going to decompose. And in that scenario, 
cause greenhouse gases like methane and CO2. In fact, the Western Cape Department of Environmental Affairs and Development Planning is considering banning organic waste like food and garden waste in landfill sites within five years or even a complete ban within 10 years which means everyone in the western cape would have to separate because of this particular thing but the environmental effects go beyond this um here's jan again if i look at groundwater um in a newly constructed uh, properly designed landfill the risk of groundwater pollution is is really minimal. Um, now you 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 got to have an, uh, some kind of accident or um, a hole in the plastic or you know, something or, or maybe the plastic can tear when there's not uh, not not correct loading on the on the liner. But but if that doesn't happen, then 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 your groundwater is is, is fairly safe from um, from landfill liquids. Um, the problem comes in. In, in the many landfills we have in, in South Africa, which has no baseliners, and you know, if you have a heavy rainstorm, those those uh, um, um, waters simply trickle through the waste body and you know goes down through the through the soil, and eventually, it will contaminate the groundwater. Now, there there are things that you can do to to prevent that, but uh, but if your if your your base of your landfill is not lined then there is a real risk of of contaminating the groundwater. And it's not just the groundwater, because the soil itself can be contaminated in these old landfills. Thankfully, these design strategies like compressing the trash and covering it with soil are also in place to protect the health of people living or staying or working around the landfill. And yes, all of this design is in place now in South Africa, as you have heard. But landfills are not always safe and not always controlled in the ways they should be, as we've seen in the case of Mozambique recently. Here is how a landfill could collapse. One of the things that we must do in South Africa is that we must prove um, the stability of a landfill. So when we design a landfill, we must uh, we must submit a a design report to the Department of Water Affairs through through Environmental Affairs, and uh, in that report we must actually prove that uh, that all the layers that we that we install within the base liner that they don't slip, so that the liners are stable, or the or the layers with within the liner, and then we must also prove that when when you add waste on top of that, and you build that that landfill, let's say 10, 15, or 20 meters high that the whole waste body would be stable. Um, we have to check that regularly. What happens is that in the majority of landfills, the smaller landfills, um, the controls are, are, are seriously lacking in terms of operational controls. And a lot of, a lot of operators are, are using what we call uh, the end tipping method. So they just push the waste over the end and thereby creating very, very steep angles. Then the waste become unstable. These steep slopes can become easily disturbed and dangerous, which is why the design and the upkeep is so important. The truth is that even if you design the landfill perfectly, most of the trash you and I have ever thrown away is still out there in a hole somewhere. The negative side is that that waste body will stay there basically for eternity. And that is one of the questions about how sustainable is landfilling. That is also why 
in the waste industry, we, we must try and divert as much waste from landfill as possible through recycling and composting and crushing of builders' rubble and waste to energy and you know, do all those things so that we only put waste into a landfill that we really cannot recover. We all had a scare with, with the shortage of electricity and down here in the Cape, you know, we, we are sitting in the middle of the drought with water. Waste is going to be the next, the next crisis um, because we don't really have enough space on our landfills for all the waste that we generate. We, we, we as a people, we need, we need to reduce our waste footprint. One, one should not think of a landfill as a place where I can throw my waste. One should think of a landfill is, is a place where my waste have to go to if I can't do anything else with it like a safety net. Isn't that incredible? Have you thought about your trash like that? Like, as your responsibility, what can you do with it and only if you can't compost or recycle or reuse, then you'll give it to the landfill. I think the fewest of us think about that when we throw something away that's plastic or glass or can and could be used so easily so i know trash and landfills most of us don't want to think about it we think it is for people like jan it is for engineers like that to deal with but it is in fact our responsibility and we do need to become better with this because every time that we as I said, reuse or recycle, we are saving that thing from taking up space in a hole and possibly being dangerous to the environment. But sadly, the truth in South Africa is that people do live close to landfills and even make a living off of them. I know we have all seen people walk down the street and collect the recycling, look in the trash, and Jan does know this, and he, like other landfill engineers, do take this into account. We have seen through the years that you know, when you when you establish a landfill, then then um, the communities you know, move closer and move closer, and uh, one day you see the guys are right next door to your landfill, and they, there's a lot of people making a living harvesting waste off a landfill. Um, I think it's it's one of the least dignified jobs on earth. Um, and and one should rather, uh, when you design a landfill, design a recovery facility right next to it, so so that you you can create um, that same um, recovery operations, but you can you can create it in a working environment that is that is safe for the humans, and 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 that would give them some more dignity in 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 terms of um, personal um, protective wear and you know, a proper job and 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 and. And a, a, a structured environment within which they uh, they can work, but um, the the reason why there are so many um, what we call nowadays harvesters on a landfill is because we as people throw away a lot of waste that that should have been recycled at source. What an amazing idea. I love this. It just solves so many problems. If we had recovery facilities next to landfills, we could, uh, you know, help reuse and recycle more things. And far more importantly, or also just as important, is that the people who are already living off of rubbish in South Africa, off of trash, would be given proper jobs and given proper equipment so they're not getting sick from what they're touching. 
I love this idea and um, I I just think that there should be so many more of these facilities because there is one um, in Malmesbury at the moment, uh, Worcester is putting one up. I, I think we should maybe just do a whole story on this because it's so fascinating. But I hope you, I hope you learned a thing or two today about landfills. I know you didn't tune in to the radio today to think or to this podcast today to hear about trash. But you know what? You are making it every day and so am I. We might as well take responsibility for it and understand how the environment is being protected from all of those gases and toxic chemicals. Thank you so much to uh, civil engineer Jan Palm for helping us on that story. Stay listening. Next up, we get into the weird and wonderful side of science. It's unscience. Listen to the Science Inside podcast on www.journalism.co.za. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. It is now time for that little break in the show where we look at science that honestly I think would fascinate anyone. If you can't manage to wrap your head around chemistry or biology or all those things that you probably avoided in school, I promise you, unscience will be the thing that makes you love science because what we do is we take a sign of research you have probably never seen before. We find some research into things that are so strange, so close to life or so out there that it will definitely fascinate you and us all. So today, this is especially for those of us who are a little bit of hustlers. We want to be successful. We want to make something of life. We're ready to work hard. This one is for you. Let's get into unscience. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. And again, I am joined by my producer, Bridget LePere. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Elna. So we all want to be successful in life, even though that obviously means different things for different people. So maybe it's a big fancy car, maybe it's a big salary or a big family, just being, uh, you know, having lots of friends, having a good life, whatever success means to you. Bridget, what do you think it takes to make somebody successful? For me, it would be somebody who is happy, who is content with their life, who is able to live within their means. But obviously, it takes a certain amount of hard work, of effort that you put in in those goals and dreams that you envision for your life. Yeah, it's not just hoping that it'll happen (laughs) today. I think we can all identify with that. And the thing is, though, how would you feel... If it weren't just hard work, if it weren't just effort and trying and taking risks and bettering yourself, Bridget, how would you feel if I told you success is actually just like, it is random whether you become successful or not? Or like a butterfly that just flits and like, just like, you know, a butterfly of luck just flits and lands on my lap. Yeah, just sit back and relax. You're happy with that? Yep. (laughs) Well, then I have some research for you to read because you know that on this show, everything has signs somewhere in it, even success. So there's a newly released paper from the University of Catania in Italy called Talent versus Luck. The role of randomness in success and failure. 
So in this particular case, they took financial wealth, specifically through a job over several years, as an indicator of success. Well, that is easier to measure because, I mean, we're speaking about numbers here. So, yeah. It is measure how happy you are. Yeah, it is a bit hard to to put numbers to how happy people are in terms of success. So I understand why they simplified it in terms of money in this case. But the thing is that in many, especially Western cultures, there's this idea that successful people are doing well in life because they have something special. They've done something special or they are just naturally special in some way in their personality. So you mean they have certain amounts of talent, intelligence or skills, or maybe they have put a lot of um, amount of, of effort and they take big risks. Exactly. Those kind of things. I think if we all think about it, we think that. We look at somebody who's successful, maybe running a big business or, um, you know, publishing a lot of uh, work, maybe they're making a lot of money and we think, yo, that person, they're doing well. They must have worked really hard to get there. They must be special. They didn't just get it because of luck. And yes, we think a little bit of luck might come in, but it turns out we are very much underestimating this. These researchers did various statistical simulations on this and they compared whether talent and, and intelligence or luck influences wealth more. So it is well established that in a typical population of people, there's a normal distribution of intelligence or talent or other personal qualities. They call this a Gaussian distribution, or sometimes it, you might have heard it being called a bell curve. And you can imagine it as a smooth, balanced curve, kind of like a high speed bump. So balance on either side. There's a small amount of people on the not very clever side and a few on the extremely intelligent opposite end, but most people are somewhere there in the middle. So are you saying that money is money also shared the same way among people? Well, no, and this is where it gets interesting. Distribution of wealth usually doesn't follow this Gaussian distribution. It follows something called the Pareto Principle or the Pareto Law or also called the Power Law. This means that there is a very small group with a lot of money. That's the billionaires. And then there is a large majority of people with very little. It's also called the 80-20 law. The idea being 80% of people get 20% of the things, 20% of people get 80% of the things. And we've all heard that when we hear those lists of very rich, famous people. Mm -hmm. So if we drew this graph, they would start, they'd be right there at the top and then it would drop very quickly and then those people just stay there. Yes. So if you now imagine these two graphs that we're talking about, the Gaussian uh, distribution curve and the Pareto distribution curve, the one is kind of like a high speed bump and the other one is sort of like a roller coaster up high and then shoop, down to the bottom. So that, so when you think of those two things, the curve and the drop, they are clearly very different. And that means, in simple terms, how intelligent and how talented you are is clearly not directly linked to how much money you have because it's completely different distributions across uh, across the population. Otherwise, they would be the same and the people who are very intelligent would be very rich. 
Yeah, well, this is something that I see normal in ordinary life with very talented people in very poor economic states and then some of the very rich people who make very, you know, not very intelligent choices. Yeah, we're not going to talk about some world leaders here. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. (laughs) I think when you think about it, it does make absolute sense. And yet... Now look back at the ideas in your head around success. And society does seem to have this thing that the more intelligent and talented you are, the more effort you put in. Um, And the more you'll be rewarded with success in the form of money. But clearly that's not true because we have highly talented artists in some places, maybe living in a township that aren't being um, rewarded the way they should if, if those two things were linked so I do have to say that this simulation, um, in the simulation, they gave all of the hypothetical individuals that they were statistically determining, um, they gave them the same starting capital. So we're not talking in the simulation about a deeply unequal society. Everybody started with the same. So it's not like some people were poor because they were poor to begin with. And this is what makes this even more crazy because... Because they're all starting on equal footing and still highly intelligent people weren't ending up more wealthy than those that weren't intelligent. So, is this all just randomness? That can't be. Yeah, because we want intelligent people and we want talented people to do well. Succeed, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so sorry for bringing you terrible news. Thankfully, it isn't just random. Your effort and intelligence and talent does matter. But what this study proves is that luck or randomness is more powerful than we think. And what ends up happening is that people who have been lucky in some way like being honored or promoted or paid in the beginning of their career, are likely to be judged on that and then given even more, making them even more lucky and wealthy. So, mediocre but lucky people are are actually often more successful than very gifted but unlucky individuals. This depresses me a little bit, (laughs) Bridget. It is depressing. So... The researchers aren't saying don't try hard, you know, sit in the corner, luck will happen to you. They're obviously not saying that, but they are saying that the systems of Western businesses and governments that are used to reward people for their talents are often not as fair and democratic as we think. So they've actually come up, these researchers, with a formula that takes luck into account and can make funding strategies more balanced by giving a minimum level of success for everyone, including the most talented people who are expected to produce the most progressive and innovative ideas, but are often not rewarded for this. Yeah. I never thought that luck would play such a big part in success. Me neither. It does make me a little bit depressed because you always get told if you're clever, you'll go far. Yeah, if you go to school and, you know, you work really hard, you do really well. But I think it just shows you that life is complex and it's not just that. And if you're working really hard, but you aren't being seen, that doesn't mean that you're not working hard or you're not intelligent. It just means maybe luck is not on your side today.
That was unscience uh, for you from this week. Unusual, unlikely, unscience is what we call it. The music is by AudioNautics.com. And thanks to Improbable Research. It's one of the places we love to find stories like this. Next up, though, behind great science are some amazing people. And we want to know how they tick. We speak to geologist Tiamo Lehuale. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elma. We end off the show now with our time in the show where we look at the scientists behind the science. We focus on one person and we really just try to show you that it's not just facts and figures. There are humans behind the science. Today we're going to be speaking to Tiamo Lehuale um, and she is a geologist at Mintec, an organization in South Africa specializing in mineral research. She hails from Mohwase, a small town in Rustenburg, and her upbringing in this mining town sparked her interest in geology, particularly in mining. And she kept looking into the subject, propelling her into work um, then at, mine, at Mintec, rather, in the small-scale mining and beneficiation division. Her research is into something so fascinating. I can't wait to ask her about this. It's called phytomining and it's a greener mining technique that uses high biomass plants so that's high fuel producing organic matter such as maize, wheat or animal waste and she is wanting to use these plants to biologically extract metals such as gold from mine dumps which is quite amazing phytomining is a recent and more advanced technology of removing harmful chemicals from the soil to produce low volume sulfide free bio ore Usually, phytoremediation, as it's called, is used to clean the soil, but she is hoping to use it to remove the product she wanted. In this case, it's gold, which I think is really, really interesting. And this genius idea not only gained her the overall uh, winning ticket of the Fame Lab competition here in South Africa, but she went to compete in London last year at the Fame Lab International Championship. Not only is she the first South African to do so, she also happens to be the first African to win it. Tiama Lehuale is on the line with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Alma, and hello to the listeners. So phytoremediation, it's an innovative technique and it uses these super plants to clean up the environment. How did you test your theory that actually, hey, we could use this to retrieve gold residue from the soil? Well, um, like you're saying, phytoremediation has been around for a while and it was used mostly in the States to clean up things such as oil spillages and heavy metal pollution plumes. So we wondered if, if certain plants can suck up chemicals and heavy metals, can't we use the same plants to extract metals of interest from substrates? And that's what intrigued us and that's what sparked the interest into phytomining. Okay, so I understand the first step that these plants could suck something from the soil. But now your plants have gold. How do you get to it? What happens afterwards? 
Okay, after we extract the gold from the substrate, the plants themselves undergo processing. This processing um, starts off with ashing and then we use um, processes such as liquid extraction to remove the, the, the gold from the actual ash of the plant. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. In one of your pictures in uh, during FameLab, you mentioned that there is an estimated 17.7 million tons of gold waste out there. Gold that was not entirely mined out previously. How would phyto mining be applied practically in gold dumps in terms of the technology, the infrastructure, even the ownership of dumps? Well, at the moment, we're still doing the feasibility research. So we're still in the lab and we're still doing field trials to try it and say whether or not it's actually feasible as a practice. But we do acknowledge the fact that we've got challenges in South Africa around mining dumps, and especially where communities are involved or the dumps okay near communities. And so there would have to be a lot of working together between landowners, communities adjacent to the mines, as well as the mining houses themselves. The idea is to flatten out the dump and place the seeds there, harvest after some time and send the harvested material off to incineration. And so when we model it, there could be just one um, group doing the planting, the harvesting and the processing or it could be a chain, just like we've got a chain for the mining processes in South Africa, where the miner isn't necessarily the person who processes the material. So we could have um, subsections within the phyto mining daily chain. Hmm. Let's move from the science itself to you, the scientist. Your brother got you interested in geology, but your sides were originally in, set on public relations. How have oh. you gotten where you are now? Well, um, I learned from an early stage that I could actually do both. And I think I was very fortunate, Elma, because I work with impoverished communities. I do a lot of training. I do a lot of skills transfer. So I get to engage with the public while teaching them just the geology that I know. Hmm. That makes sense. So you kind of got both dreams, a little bit of both. I, I kind of got the best of both worlds. Hmm. What kind of challenges are you faced with in the industry? I know even dream careers have their tough sides. Well, the, the major challenge is the, the price of metals. As you all know, the economy affects that. And when they go down, there is not very much interest in secondary processes around mining and metals. So that's the number one biggest challenge that I face as well as the community's inability to adapt to change. That has been one of the biggest challenges that I've faced so far. Having to go out in communities and engage them on new processes and new techniques is challenging because we're not always very open to change and we are we cling on to cultural methods of doing things. Mm, yeah, even when there are scientifically newer and better ways of doing it. And better, better for our health as well as better for the environment. Mm. So in the face of these challenges, what motivates you every day to wake up and say, remediation? that's what I want to do? My love for the environment motivates me every day. I love greenery. I love fresh smelling air. I think the, the, the earth deserves a chance.
that's what I think. I think the earth deserves a chance. And for the longest time, we've deprived the earth of a chance to thrive. So my love for nature and my love for the environment motivates me every day, as well as the possibility of creating jobs through environmentally safe and environmentally conscious decisions. That motivates me that when we talk of true sustainability, we are talking about environmental welfare and social responsibility as well as economic growth. And that you don't have to choose one over the other. I'm really motivated by gaining true sustainability in the country where nothing has to suffer for us to move forward as a, as a, as a country. Mm. Lastly, Tamar, we ask most of our guests this in this uh, particular slot. Can you tell me just shortly, what is the one thing you wish ordinary people out on the streets of Joburg or South Africa right now understood about your work and why it's important? I wish everybody understood that it is not all in the lab. That's what I wish people understood. That it is not all in the lab. It is not big laws and formulas and all every fairy. It's actually everyday techniques and everyday activities. And the work that we do, we do to change or rather to better how we do our everyday activities. Hmm. And and it is so close to many of our lives. Uh, in in terms of of the environment and finding solutions to mm. really do the best we can. Thank you so okay. much for speaking to us. That was Tiamo Lehuale, a geologist who is using plants to really get the last bits of gold uh, residue from mining dumps. Thank you very much for having me, Alma, and thank you to the listeners. Stay with us on the Science Inside. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Yes, indeed, it is the Science Inside, and my name is Alna Schutz. We have looked at so many different things today. I really encourage you to go grab the podcast about the story about trash. And I know you're saying, what, Alna? I don't want to think about where my trash goes, but it is so important. And it's not just about reusing and recycling. It's actually where does that the last like trash really end up in the landfills and how is it in- affecting our environment. Then in unscience, we talked about is it luck or is it talent that makes you successful? And we actually got a, uh, a tweet from Will Moncha saying, life is not really about luck or talent. Life is about perseverance. If you keep on trying, you will make it in life. And I've got to say, well, I agree with you there. That is what life always feels like for me. But sure, I don't know. This this research is making me think about it a little bit differently. The randomness does come into it. So thank you. A thank you goes to all of our guests featured on the show today, including Jan Palm and Tiamo Lehuale. Our team behind the scenes is producer Bridget Lepere and tech by Kutlano Serame. The podcast, as I mentioned, is on journalism.coza forward slash science, on Facebook with The Science Inside, and on Twitter at VowFM. So it's really easy to find us. Maybe tell us what you would love to hear about on The Science Inside. My name is Alna Schutz, and this show is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Thank you so much, and we will chat again next week. 
The Science Inside Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Power FM 88.1. Listen to the Science Inside podcast on www.journalism.co.za.